Welcome to Round Trip Death, and Merry Christmas! Today we're going to hear from a retired U.S. Navy veteran and his experience of when his plane went down. But before we do, I'd like to ask a small favor. If you appreciate this show and its message, please click over to roundtripdeath.com. In the upper right corner of the homepage, you'll see a little donate button. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on for another season, click there and be generous. Thank you in advance. And now let's hear about Tony's plane crash. Today we are thrilled to have on the line with us Tony Woody, retired chief petty officer from the U.S. Navy, served 20 plus years as a flight engineer. I'm going to call him a hero because I can see over his shoulder, he's got a bunch of medals and things. And um, anyway, we appreciate you and your service. Tony, how are you today? Doing okay. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Well, you're very welcome. And when I heard your story and things that you've done since then, uh, I found it fascinating and just wanted to talk. So I'm glad you're here. And if you don't mind, let's start clear back and talk about, I mean, what, what got you into the Navy and what got you into flying? Well, I grew up in a small town in East Texas, and there was nothing really there for me uh, at a high school. I mean, for instance, we had 37 people in my senior class. So there's like no industry there. It's just farming or you have something to do with the school or or something or small business. And so my dad had been in the Navy. He was in World War II. And uh, uh, I decided I was going to go into the Navy before I even got out of high school. So I did an early enlistment. And uh, did boot camp, went to Memphis, Tennessee for A school, and then got sent to my first command. And I uh, wanted to go into aviation. I knew that. And so I went in to learn to be a jet engine mechanic. So my first uh, tour of duty, I got sent to Jacksonville, Florida to patrol squadron 49. Now, I didn't know as a kid that um, squadrons had nicknames like the Blue Sharks or the Gray Knights. So I just see Patrol Squadron 49 on my on my orders. Sorry about the dog. I can't do anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. A little dog barking is yeah. makes it he, real. Yeah. He's real all right. <laughs> uh so where was I? Um Squad 49. Oh, so I, I don't all it says on my orders is Patrol Squadron 49. So I go to the, the squadron duty office and I check on board. Uh, and I realized that I got sent to the VP 49 woodpeckers for my first tour of duty. And my last name is Woody. <laughs> and I knew that wasn't an accident. <laughs> and I know the guy in Washington, D.C. who wrote my orders is probably laughing his butt off when he wrote my order. I know where I'm sending this kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's funny. And, you know, woodpeckers don't seem like the meanest, toughest animals out there. They call themselves the, the world famous woodpeckers. I don't know. I've, I don't, you know, there's a history to the squadron. It's been around for a long, long time. It's, it's gone now, but uh, there was a long history to it. So when you first check onto a squadron, they put you in a gedunk, they call it. I mean, they put you in first lieutenant division, which is where you do the, the, the crap jobs for a few weeks, right? Uh, a few months until you get put into your work center and start learning your, how to work on the engines and propellers and all that on the airplane. That was what I was supposed to go do. So I got put in, there's many different jobs you can do. And I got put in the squadron snack bar. They called it a gedunk. That's a nickname for it in the military. I don't know where that phrase comes from, but that just means, you know, a place to go get food and, and snacks and things like that. 
And there was nobody in there at the time. I was running the register and this commanding officer came in. I'm 10 days in the squadron. I'm a know-nothing nugget, right? Uh, I'm airman apprentice. And I'm wearing my dungarees. It's got my name stenciled on my shirt and on my back, on my pants on the above my right pocket on the back. And so he, Skipper, my commanding officer comes in. I picked up on that by seeing his name tag. It said COVP 49 on it. And I realized commanding officer, right? I'm like, that's my skipper. I realized that. So he made his order. He's got all his flight gear with him. He's going flying. He's happy. He's going to take some food. To, he's going to go shoot touch and goes. And he's an instructor pilot and teach another pilots. And, you know, they're going to go what we call the salt the runway for four hours. <laughs> okay. Uh, shooting touch and goes. And, uh, and do some training. And so he's all happy. And then he makes his order. I turn around to get his stuff and I put it back on the counter. I look up at him and he's angry and I know it. You can see it in his face. There's something wrong and it's something to do with me. And I have no understanding what it is. And I'm terrified. I'm only 18 years old. <laughs> and he looks at me and he's serious. And he goes, you know, son, just because you're in the VP 49 Woodpeckers doesn't mean you can't stencil your proper name on your uniform. I'm like, <laughs> I'm so scared I can't talk. So I reflex action. I pulled my wallet out and I handed him my military ID card. And he takes it in his hand. He looks at it and he looks over at it and raises his eyebrows. He goes, you mean I got a Woody in the Woodpeckers? <laughs> <laughs> Love said, it. I said, yes, sir. I guess so. So he hands it back to me. Now he's really happy, right? He was already happy. He's going flying, and now he's ecstatic. He just found out he's this commanding officer of the Woodpeckers, and he's got a Woody in the Woodpeckers. He couldn't be more happy. And as he's going out the door, I blurted out a question. I said, hey, Skipper, what's it like to fly one of those big old birds? And he smiled and said, come with me, son, and I'll show you. And I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe it. He hooks me up with the flight engineer, um, and they get me a flight suit and all that. And uh, I, I hang out with him for the whole pre-flight. Just didn't know anything, and I'm asking a billion questions and just loving it. And I'm sitting uh, behind the pilot seat on the left side. There's a flat panel there before, when they're starting engines, and we're getting ready to taxi out and go take go take off. And I don't know anything, right? I don't know anything about what I'm supposed to do in this thing. <laughs> it's just watching. And uh, so we get to the approach into the runway, and I'm wondering if I were to go get in a chair. I have no understanding of what what the right thing is to do here. And, and the skipper's in the right seat. So I'm off on the opposite side of the airplane and the engineer faces forward in that airplane and leans over and, and handles the power levers. When the pilot calls the power setting, they start pushing the power lever, the pilot does. When he gets his rudder effective, he takes his hand off the, the power levers and, and the engineer finishes setting power, right? So that's how that job works. And it's, and it's all three facing forward. Uh, it's a, and so I'm on the left side and the skipper turns to the engineer. We're waiting for another plane to land. We've got about a 10 minute wait because his plane's about 10 or 15 miles out. And uh, so the skipper turns to the engineer just as I'm going to ask, what should I do? And he looks at the en engineer in the seat and says, what do you think? Should we put him in there? And I didn't know what he was talking about. And the, en and the engineer goes, yeah, absolutely. And he unbuckles his harness and he gets out of the seat and sits behind the skipper on the right side. And the skipper looks at me and tells me to get in the chair. And the next thing I know, and I'm like, I, I had this look on my face, like, probably, are you nuts? You know, and he puts his hand up and says, don't worry, son, we'll tell you what to do. And I jumped in. And uh, next thing I know, I'm pushing power levers going down the runway. And we lift off the deck. And the engineer is doing all the checklist stuff over my head right behind me. 
And uh, and I'm just can't believe this. And then the skipper smacks me on my leg after they're done with the with the checklist on the downwind. He says the down leg turn. He goes, by the way, son, you know, you could do this job. And for the next four hours, I sat in the seat and pushed power levers. Two hours earlier before that, I was selling hot dogs. Where else can you do that, man? <laughs> That's really awesome. By the way, we have some younger listeners, and I have a feeling they don't know who Woody Woodpecker is. You better tell them. Okay. It's a it's a cartoon from the 50s and 60s when I was a kid growing up. And uh, you can probably find it on YouTube. Just look up Woody Woodpecker. You'll find all kinds of cartoons probably. But um, Okay. Keep going with your story. So uh, where was I? We So we were in the air. Um, so after that, um, uh, we after the flight and everything I got put after I was done in first lieutenant division doing my stint of time in there, I didn't go to power plant shop first. I went straight into the flight engineer shop at, at 18 years old and started learning how to be a flight engineer. I started on the job training and at 21 years old, I earned my wings and I was signing for a 70 ton airplane at 21 years old for the flight engineer duties, having a ball. And uh, so that was in Jacksonville, Florida, and then did a couple of deployments with them. And then, uh, moved to Barbers Point, Hawaii in 1982. By then, I had about 3,500 hours of flight time. Uh, they're getting ready to make me an instructor flight engineer at that point. I'm 24 years old, 23 at the time, actually. Uh, so now I'm 24 and been in Hawaii for about, about a year, a little over a year, year and a half. And uh, Every two years on the even year, they do a huge military exercise called the Rim Pack, uh, Rim of the Pacific, Rim Pack exercises. And uh, it's all the Australia, everything all the way out. I mean, it's huge. It's, it's, it's gigantic. It takes them two years to prepare for the next one. That's why they do it every two years. It's so big. And uh, so my crew is going out to do a flight. It's 12 hour, uh, 12 man crew. Uh, when we are maxed out for takeoff weight and everything, we weigh uh, 70 tons, uh, carry 62,000 pounds of fuel. So we're climbing out and get to about 10,000 feet uh, to go do a 12-hour mission. And the chip slide on number one engine comes on, which means the engine's making metal. And you don't know if it's just a piece of fuzz or if it's uh, chunks that are about to be a catastrophic failure. So you shut it down for precautionary shutdown. We declare an emergency, start heading back to the base and um, um, have to dump some fuel. we got to get down to max allowable land weight. You can't land with all the fuel you had on board. Uh, so you don't damage the, the structural integrity of the airplane if you hit too hard. And um, so when you do an emergency landing, we brief that. We did that on the approach, uh, coordinating with ground as well, air, air, air traffic control and ground. And we've got fire trucks on the side of the runway. There's six of them, two, one on each side. So they're spread out down the runway, but evenly. And as you go by one, when you go by a pair of them, they pull in behind you. And then the next two pull in behind them and so on to, to be right there in case anything goes wrong. Well, what happened was the pilot... Uh, when we landed, everything was normal when the main mounts touched down to... to uh, main mount landing gears when the nose gear came down the pilot put in incorrect rudder we we expected a swerve to the right because two engines on that side are giving reverse thrust versus only one on the other so you're going to have more force it's going to pull you to the right and you, we know that 
I mean, it's common. We do that brief all the time. So, but instead of doing that, he put in the incorrect rudder. Now we're coming in fast because we're heavy. Typically we land with 8,000 pounds of fuel left when we're done with a long mission. We still had 42,000 pounds of fuel on the plane. So we're really fast because we have extra weight. And we're coming in at 135 knots, which is just a tad over 155 miles an hour. And when you depart, the, when you go, when things go wrong at that speed, it happens really fast. And the next thing I know, I felt the swerve. I'm like, okay, he's going to correct. You know, that didn't happen. And we kept going off the runway and I'm just shocked. And then, uh, and then everything changed. Now I'm in terror because I see us heading right at one of the fire trucks on the, on the right side of the runway. Uh, we landed on runway 040 left, this parallel runway. So there's asphalt between the two runways, but there's no fire trucks out there or no roads or, so they don't, they only clean the taxiways and the runways. And I say this for a reason. There's usually a lot of, there's going to be a lot of debris in the other areas. They'll clean them from time to time, but it's still not like what they do every day for the runway. When we departed the runway, we started, I started panicking. I mean, I, I knew I was about to die. There was no question. I had death coming at me at 155 miles an hour and there was nothing I could do about it. And I remember my son, I've got to have a three year old son at the time. And all I wanted to do was hold him one more time. And I, I, I knew I was never going to see him again, my wife. And it just, you won't believe how much goes through your mind when you know you only have a few seconds left. It's astonishing. Uh, I cannot even put it in words, really. And then uh, as we got closer to the fire truck, I was the terror was so great. The next thing I realized is I'm out of the airplane, probably 40 feet, 30, 40 feet above everything, looking down on all of it. The me inside the seat is terrified. And I can see the guy on the water cannon on the top screaming uh, as we're headed straight at him. He's looking at the propellers, probably not at me, <laughs> but I could see his face. The me outside could see everything and, and was absolutely perfectly calm. No concerns, just observing, watching it happen. It's like watching TV, sitting there watching TV. That's, you know, but with extreme detail, way better than the best HD you've ever seen. And this is back in 1982 before HD was invented. <laughs> and uh, the number four propeller should have slammed into the truck. The propeller is 13 feet in diameter from tip to tip. Weighs a thousand, is spinning at a thousand and twenty rounds a minute and weighs twenty two hundred pounds and moving forward at one hundred and fifty five miles an hour. And two of the four blades gapped the front left corner of that fire truck. Then as we got past the fire truck, the co pilot starts yelling because the pilot's not doing anything to correct the issue. So the co pilot and we're now we're on the asphalt between the two runways and at an angle heading toward the other runway at, a, at over 130 knots. And uh, he's not doing anything to stop it. And so the co-pilot yells out, get on the brakes, get on the brakes. You better get on the effing brakes. I mean, he yelled it loud the last time. And that's kind of woke up the pilot and he hit, that's when he hit the brakes and slammed into reverse thrust uh, properly this time. When all of that's happening, I saw this Pepsi can from inside the plane whooshed by the 
window from left to right, tipping over, throwing fluid out. I could read the 12 ounces on the can. I could see it. Uh, everything was slow motion. Everything got super slow motion. And then I started focusing on the atomized uh, uh, water fluid that was coming out because it was being hit by the, you know, the thrust off the propeller blades. And so it's atomizing these fluids. And, and everywhere the atomized, atomization happened, I, I became those little droplets. And then any piece of debris that was in the air, I'm wrapping and rolling around my everything. And I don't understand what's going on. I don't know if I'm dead. I don't know if I'm having this crazy dream at night in bed. I don't understand anything uh, at all. And it kept doing that all the way till we went across the runway. I mean, the asphalt between the runways. And the runways have a slight slope on it to uh, <clears throat> elevated uh, to allow for rain to wash off. So the nose, mount, nose gear and the right main mount bounced up on that runway on the other side of the <laughs> runway four right on the left side of four right and the uh left main mounts off of it so it's about a foot and a half two feet lower and so we're kind of at an angle sitting there stopped engines are running and then all these different uh bio locations i call them or multiple locations of my consciousness or whatever you want i don't know what it was all pulled back into me just from outside just just closed into me. I don't even know how to say that, but uh, there was no sound or anything, but it just all did that. <laughs> and then I'm stunned. I'm trying to figure out what just happened. And I'm, I'm, I'm on an adrenaline rush. And then I came off of it when I realized I was okay. And I felt like I just ran five marathons back to back. I mean, I was really healthy, physically fit 24 year old, and I felt like I was, I mean, I was exhausted, man, wiped out. And I looked to to the right at Lieutenant uh, Duffy in the right seat. And he, um, I watched him slump when he came off his adrenaline rush. I don't remember if I actually said something to him. I was trying to say something to him. And I couldn't get it out. I didn't know how to express what just happened. And uh, and before I could, any, anything else happened, I, I heard this whoop. Whoop sound and I didn't know what that was and then Duffy's looking at me where we were eye to eye and then he looks past me at uh Lieutenant Lovegren and I turn around to look at him and he's still in a you know panic mode white knuckling the yoke he still hasn't let go of the yoke and he's just tight as he can be and he's going whoop, whoop, with the stress in his face I can see it and he goes what the did I do wrong you know <laughs> And I just, we kind of all just shook at our, shook our heads and he calmed down. And then the fire trucks all came up around us and we talking to the tower and stuff. And we realized the plane's okay. And we ended up adding power and rolling out at, and getting on the run, the other runway and finishing the landing. So I literally used, did one landing, emergency engine out landing on one runway and finished it on an entirely different runway. <laughs> <laughs> not a pleasant experience, so I, but I was very, I, I didn't know what to do about that. I, I mean, it was very raw. And so I just took care of the airplane, went back to the hangar and didn't want to talk about it. I didn't know what to do. Uh, and so when I got to the hangar, I realized I'm on the, I'm on the uh, flight, flight schedule again for the next day. 
So do they do some kind of a debriefing after each of these missions where, or especially no. with an emergency where you talk about what happened or write a report or. Oh uh, no. yeah. Port gets written up in uh, uh NATOP's office, but I'm not, I wasn't okay. part of that. You know? So you didn't really have anybody to talk to about this. Did you, oh. did you talk to any of the other men in the cockpit to see if they had a similar experience? Uh, not after that. I was just, I didn't know what to do. You know, yeah. I mean, I needed help. I didn't know what, where to go to get it. How do you go ask for help for something like that? And so uh, <laughs> without looking crazy, you know. Yeah. So when did you first, when did you first talk about it? Well, I'm, I'm getting there. <clears throat> uh, okay. So that happened on a Monday. And you were talking about, you know, did they talk to anybody? They don't know that the next Tuesday, Tuesday, the skipper, I find out I'm on the flight schedule, right? So they don't today, if anything like that happened, they'd put you through, you know, psychiatric uh, evaluation and all that before they ever let you back in the flight station. But not back then. Skipper, the commanding officer, who was an instructor pilot, took me and the pilot, my my crew pilot. He was an experienced pilot. He was a good pilot. He just made a mistake one day, you know, uh, took us both back out to go fly. And I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, OK, we're going flying. And uh so let's get right back on the horse, in other words, was the philosophy. Exactly. Um, see if you can handle it or not. <laughs> and, uh, and that's just how they did business back then. So not knowing anything, I didn't know it was going to affect me. Uh, on the first approach, I'm now seeing the same runway. We literally are landing on the same runway. The winds were the, such that we ended up using the same exact runway. I've started... The anxiety in me is post-traumatic stress is what it was, but I didn't understand that at the time. That wasn't even a term yet back then. And um, so I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm feeling that, but I don't want the skipper to know I'm not, uh, I don't have my head in the game. So normally I would sit up in the seat and have a commanding 180 degree view of the flight station and the approach. And then right before we land, my job, in case it's needed, is would be to push the power levers on a wave off if we had to go around for some reason. It might be a dog on the runway. You never know. And uh, so I would then then bend forward and do that. But I didn't want the skipper to see my face because I knew he if he saw me, he'd know. He'd know. I just felt he'd know. And I probably wouldn't get to fly anymore. So I kept bent forward and had my hand on the power lever. And that way I couldn't I didn't look outside, but it looked like I had my my head in the game looking at all the instruments on the in front of me and uh to about three or four landings i had to go through that until i convinced myself in my head i'm like tony you've been through you know you got 3500 hours flight time done thousands of landings you need to get your head back in the game and knock it off or something like that i just said i just decided i wasn't going to do that anymore and feel like that and i forced myself to sit up and watch the next approach and then after couple of those I was fine and I never had that problem again uh, so thinking all of that stuff is over with in my life and I can move forward because I just didn't want to deal with what happened I didn't understand it so I just like okay I'm military we're really good at compartmentalization <laughs> when the time comes you just compartmentalize certain things and, okay I'll deal with that later I've got this to do now and uh or just push it out and say I'm not going to deal with that because I don't understand it and I don't know where to get help so Leave it out there. And that's just how you, you'd go about it in the military. So you can go back to work, you know. And uh, 
So now this is on a Wednesday. My wife and I had a son who's about three years old. Wife and I are watching a show. He's already in bed, but we're, we're watching a show called uh, That's Incredible that used to come on back in the 80s. And they had this, and you can still find it on YouTube, the story about a guy named, it was her name, I think his, his mother's name was May, I believe. Uh, but his name was Leslie Lemke, L-E-M-K-E, I think that's how you spells his name. And you can find his story on YouTube. But it was the first time I'd ever seen it. It's the first time it had been aired. And so I'm watching it, and uh, uh, May is telling about when she couldn't have any kids, and she had had a dream that uh, I think she said Christ came to her and told her that she was going to be offered three babies for adoption soon and that she was to take the baby boy that was blind, born blind. And that happened in a few few months later or whatever. And so she did. She did what she was supposed to do. And uh, as he grew up, it became apparent he was severely mentally retarded and could had to be taken care of all of his life. And she treated him like a baby most of his life. And they brought him out. Uh, and then she's telling a story where one night at, after he's an adult, she's in bed upstairs and she hears music downstairs. And she thinks somebody left the TV or the radio on. And she goes downstairs to turn it off. But here's Leslie sitting at the piano playing it perfectly and singing gospel music. And I was just dumbfounded. And his voice was astonishingly beautiful. I called it a hauntingly holy voice. It just penetrated my heart. And I was like, I knew I was seeing a miracle. To me, it wasn't. So I'm thinking I'm seeing my first miracle. And, you know, I'm 24. I didn't, I, I, I now understand that absolutely everything is a miracle. But I didn't know that back then. And so I'm just grateful for that. And then that night I went to bed and I'm on my back, uh, just laying in the bed with my eyes shut, a little 10 second prayer in my head. I didn't even say it out loud. I just said out to just a genuine prayer, a prayer of just genuine gratitude from my heart to God, telling God I was grateful for seeing my first miracle. And thanking God for that. And then I added the words, and Lord, it'd be nice if you'd do something like that for me someday. Not, I mean, you don't really expect anything out of a little 10-second prayer in your head, you know, that's so vague. <laughs> do something nice for me, right? <laughs> it's kind of a vague prayer. Yeah, or do a miracle for me about what? Yeah. <laughs> but it, it kicked the door open, whatever it was. And I don't know how they're related, but... Somehow, the what happened to me on that Monday with the out of body experience is, is related to this, which is I later, decades later, learned it's called a spiritually transformative experience, which is exactly the same as a near death experience. You just don't have to die to have it. And, uh, but I didn't know any of this back then. So I went to sleep and probably like three, three thirty in the morning, we used to call it oh, dark 30 in the military in the middle of the night, right? Uh, all of a sudden, I had an instantaneous shift in my consciousness, the location of my consciousness. And it was just boom. I didn't go through a tunnel. I didn't physically die. I didn't get injured. I didn't do any of that. But it was clear I was not in my bedroom anymore, at least not from my mind's perspective. And the next thing I know, I'm looking at this absolutely beautiful liquid molten golden white light lo gigantic lotus flower flames of unfolding 
over and over and over again, spraying light and unconditional love out in all directions, hitting me and filling me up with it. And I'm just dumbfounded, overwhelmed, can't even think. And I remember saying three words. I said, oh, my goodness. And the instant I said the word goodness, infinite divine goodness blasted through me, just ripped through every part of the essence of me. And it was an infinite, unconditional love in first, and then came the goodness. Uh, and then it was just joy, bliss, ecstasy, infinite peace, uh, excitement. God was thrilled to see me. Just like throwing a cosmic scale party. Tony's back. Look at you know, it was it was awesome. And beyond anything I even could comprehend, I didn't know love could be like that. I had no idea this place existed. Decades later, I learned that place has got a few names. One of them is the throne room of creation. Uh, the other is uh, the great silent chamber. And I instantly understood that when I read that uh, and learned that phrase, because when I was there, there was absolutely no sound at all. You know, a lot of people would probably hear these podcasts like this, enjoy meditation. And when we meditate, we like to think it's, you know, we've got a perfectly quiet environment. It, is it perfectly quiet? Or do you hear your own breathing or your own heartbeat or maybe a wall tick, something? Not there, absolute. It wasn't perfect silence. I call it silence perfected. It was being done on purpose and you could tell that. It was the presence of God was doing that. And there's no misunderstanding about that. And then there was infinite uh Wisdom and intelligence, they're, they're one and the same because you can't have one without the other. And infinite, unconditional love all being expressed on a cosmic scale. And so well, all I wanted to do is go deeper into that light. There's this magnetic pull that happens. It's all you want. There's nothing more important than that, in my opinion. And uh, it wasn't for me at the time. I had a wife and a three-year-old in the next room, and I didn't even consider them is you just not that that sounds bad or anything it's just you can't because your consciousness is overwhelmed with the moment and i had this moment where i saw these hands uh in the peripheral of my vision out in front of me probably about arm's length but i didn't care about the hands i kept focusing on the light that's all i was interested in although i acknowledged that they were there recognized that that was there i didn't care shortly after that the from behind, the room came back into view. The darkness, it was a black void with this light going out everywhere. So anywhere from my vision came around, it started coming around to catch up with my hands. And then I, it was my own hands that were in the rooms holding up. And then, then that's when I realized I'm sitting up in bed and I have my arms out to the light that's at the end of the room and the wall and about a 10-foot circle is... The light's in my bedroom. It's, there's no wall. God's in my bedroom. And I'm sitting there crying and realizing also that my I could see her feet, my wife's feet, were, the way they were positioned, uh, that her back was to me. But didn't I, I remember I was thinking 
how can she sleep through this? You know, because it literally was like a billion stars in the room. It was unbelievably bright. Nobody could sleep through that. And, and I'm thinking these things. And that's when I, I, because God knew me, he knows I'm an engineer. And if, I, if it hadn't happened this way, I think he would have written it off as a, I would have written it off as a, just an exotic dream and found some other way to push it out of the way. Like I did on that Monday, <laughs> you know, two days before I pushed that away. Cause I didn't want to deal with that either. Uh, but I couldn't. And uh, that's when the, the, the circle started closing and not instantly, but came down in about two and a half, two, three seconds, something like that. When it did that and it closed, you know, my heart broke because I just had the greatest love I'll ever know torn away from me. I wasn't told anything. Oh, I wanted to cover one other part of the, when I was in the, in the great silent chamber was how the, how precious uh, God made sure I knew I was to God. There was this essence of God's uh, feelings for me as 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 a child, a precious baby child, and it felt like uh, my best analogy that I've ever come up with for this. And I can't seem to make it any better. Is uh, it felt like the love felt like I was being. It, imagine this: it's the end of the life of the history of the entire universe. And I was being loved, held, and cradled by every mother in every galaxy, everywhere, every when for the entire history of that universe all at once. And even that analogy is totally inadequate. And I could talk like for a billion years nonstop and you still can't explain it because it's incomprehensible to the human mind until you experience it. We really just don't have the adjectives to explain that, do we? Tell me how you said this. You felt all this love, and then did you feel sorrow that it was gone? Um, what did you feel? I felt the separation. The separation. And what did that feel like? It, it was just this ache in my heart. I was just... Yeah, and that's why you were crying. Yeah. So let me ask you something. So you said you felt this separation. Yes. And it was very emotional. Do you personally believe that before we came here to this earth that we were in the presence of God? Oh, absolutely. Because I knew I was home when I was there, too. That was the other thing I sensed. Absolutely knew that for the first time I was home and for the first time I was truly free. And This is not freedom here. And not really. I was free there. So my follow-up to that is, we in this life can't remember that experience before. We can't remember right. unless we have an experience like you're just explaining. Yeah, that's what it takes, yeah. But it takes free will to what we put our minds on so we become, right? We put our intentions on. So the more we put our attention on our creator, the right. more attributes of that creator we can draw into us with the light. And I've, I'm still having spiritual things happening to me. But there, the point I'm trying to make here is that there have been times where I have thought that would be so wonderful to be able to remember what that was like. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that. I use that all the time. That home that we came from, 
that we can't remember, and that's frustrating that we can't remember. But you spoke of this separation, and it seemed very emotional to you. Wouldn't it be very difficult for us to be here if we did remember that because we remembered what it was like and what we felt like, and now we don't feel it? Yeah, that's called human suffering. (laughs) Yeah, but the fact that we can't remember that seems like a gift that we've been given because it would be too hard if we could remember. Uh, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if that would be true or not. I'm now I know both and it's not, the life is still, I still have my challenges in daily life, you know? Uh, but I also have the comfort of knowing where I'm going and who I am. Yes, exactly. So there's other benefits to it as well. And that's a big gift that you've been given that most people don't have. What do you mean, gift? Knowing what you know because you had that experience. Yeah, um, <clears throat> to a certain degree. That that was part of what I wanted to talk about. So a lot of times, especially back when it first happened to me, people didn't really want to hear that or, or, or about my experience or whatever. And uh, what happened to me after my experience, when my, when my wife woke up and uh, realized I've been crying, I told her what happened. And I think she believed me, but later uh, I, we went to church the following Sunday, uh, a little Baptist church out in Western uh, Waianae, Hawaii, where we were living out in that area. And uh, there was a guest pastor that week, and so I went up to him afterward. I needed answers, you know. I, I was an en- I'm an engineer, so I've got to go find out yeah. what that was. Well, and you're human, so you need to talk about it also. Yeah. I, primarily, I wanted to know what it was and what happened to me. That, I just needed an answer on what, what happened to me. How could that happen? So um, we were at church. There's this time frame where they, um, they'll say, you know, are there any concerns out in the, in the church? There's about 500 people there, and a lot of them from military because we weren't that far from the base. And, uh, and so uh, several people raised their hand, and I've got my hand up, and uh, – and then he called on me. And as I'm starting to get up, my wife didn't want, she knew what I was going to do. She just knew. And she grabs me yeah. by my right hand around my wrist with both of her hands. She's got both hands on me, pulling me back down. And I literally, because I'm young and a lot stronger than her, I stood up and just yanked my arm away from her. I said, I mean, the whole place saw this. Let go of me, <laughs> you know? And then I turned to the pastor. I just ignored her after that because I'm going to go get my answer. That's kind of how I was back then, you know, and, uh, uh, I just kind of was demanding it, you know, and I asked him, gave him enough information. The whole church hears this and said, you know, I experienced something. I can't remember my words. It was too long ago, but I remember getting an answer back that totally was, didn't fit and it was inadequate. And I knew he didn't have an answer. So I let it go. And, then went outside as we're going leaving. There was this lieutenant commander from an uh, aviator from another squadron that was next to ours who knew I was an aviator. And he came up to me and told me that um, I told you about the first pastor. He turned and walked away from me. I think I told you that. Right. Did I tell you that part? No. The first church I went to. Oh, we went to our first church uh, that weekend. And I asked the pastor after the, that 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 was a, uh, at the end of that. And I was crying, but I got it out. And he just kind of tilted his head, looked at me and turned his back on me and walked off. And I was stunned. Wow. 
got angry about it. Yeah, that's then, too bad. Later, we went to the other church, and then my wife did that to me. And then I'm outside the church leaving, and this lieutenant commander from another squadron comes up to me and says, you know, you probably shouldn't be talking about that stuff anymore, because if you do, they're probably going to kick you out of the Navy and, kick, you know, cut your security clearance and keep you, you know, I'm like, I, I love my job, and I wasn't going to lose that. So I clammed up. That was it. Uh, but that doesn't work either, and it causes ultimately all kinds of right. other issues. And it's not uncommon that uh, people who have had experiences end up with divorces later because it's just it's difficult. Once you've had a taste of perfection and you come back here, it's just not easy readapting to this and then trying to understand your life anymore. Uh, everything I understood about the of, uh what I thought was a foundation of my reality got wiped out from under me in an instant. And I, the place I went to, I experienced, there was no, no time there, no space or time. I don't even know how to explain that, but you could feel it. You knew it when you're there. Totally nothing like this place at all. It's so interesting to me how each of these experiences are individual. I just talked to someone earlier today who was talking about how their experience in this heavenly spirit world had beautiful music and everything was vibrating and making this beautiful music. And you experienced this great silent chamber. Why do you think they're different for everybody? Uh, I, that's God's, that's a question for God. You know, everybody's got their own path that's unique for them. And everybody's got a way back home. It's just, have to go seek and look for it. But we have to have to seek, you know, if you, if you seek, you shall find. If you seek nothing, you find nothing. And um, I found, I, it, my answers came to me, you know, years later, decades later, from a lady who found, I decided probably like tw over 20, almost 25 years later that I was going to serve God and go tell my story. However, that was going to happen. I saw some videos online. It was when YouTube started putting them out or something. I can't remember. But I found a, a, this group in Virginia Beach that was doing that. And they had a, they were asking for anybody had a story, give us a call or whatever. And so I, I got, that was the first place I ever spoke was down there. Um, well, and, and the university there has been studying this for a long time. Yeah. In Virginia? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I've met, some of those people actually. Um, so I didn't know any of this was going to turn into this pathway that it did, you know, just like I was just going to go tell my story because I thought people ought to know and I wanted to make sure they did. And I felt that's what God expected of me. And uh, it's all led to a whole lot of other interviews since then. Speaking of that, tell us about the Johns Hopkins research that you were a part of. Oh, well, that's uh Lilia, I had spoken at an International Association for Near-Death Studies uh, in Orlando many years ago. I can't remember the year frame it was, but it was probably 10 or so years ago. And um, this lady named Lilia had seen my video, and somehow she figured out how to get in touch with me with an email and uh, starts telling me about um, the St. Germain Foundation. And I'd never heard of them. Uh, so that's a different story. But because of that relationship with the St. Germain Foundation and 
and and that information that is my foundation now. That's what I there are my answers in the Saint Germain uh, uh, series. I am discourses. It's a series of twenty books that perfectly describe. That's where I found the words the Great Silent Chamber, uh, uh, liquid molten gold and white living light. And I'll tell you that story right now too. But I'll get back to that in a minute. So remind remind me to tell you that story. So okay. Lilia contacts me. And over a period of time, uh, because of her, I, uh, I was asked to write my story up in 2019. And it was submitted with however many other people's uh, stories, I have no idea, for a narrative inquiry and bioethics article at the Johns Hopkins University. And the magazine doing it for them is called Voices. They do a quarterly narrative in, in bioethics every uh, every quarter and they've been doing it for decades 40 50 60 years something like that for johns hopkins and so they said this is the most downloaded article they've ever had by far 18 people's stories got selected we were asked to write a 300 word summary which is really hard to do uh because they had so many they you know they only have so much time to read them right so they picked the 18 out of that, and then we were told to write a 2,000-word story because there's a booklet, a hard copy print of it, that they had a budget for, so they, they needed to keep the words down. So I integrated two video links into mine because I didn't know how to write in just 2,000 words everything that happened to me. And anyway, the article came out in, in uh, 2020, and it's called Healthcare After a Near-Death Experience, and they're taking feedback from frontline providers all over the world that choose to respond and taking that data when they get however much information they need. I think they're still taking feedback and they are going to take that data and they're telling all the frontline providers to read these people's stories, see where we failed them when they came to us seeking help and uh, give us your feedback. And we'll take that data and create a medical school curriculum and clinical protocols for near-death experience patients. That's what's going on there. And so back to the St. Germain Foundation stuff. So Lilia introduced me to, to that. And those, that's where I found the, you know, the words that were fit perfectly for what I experienced when I was in the light. And one day I was getting a massage from my massage therapist in 2018. I was telling her about these books and she was seven months pregnant. And I'm on, I'm on my back and uh, looking up at her with my head off the table a little bit. And she's looking down at me, and I'm telling her about these books, the uh, St. Germain books, where one of in one sentence it described the light perfectly and explained it exactly like I experienced it. And I told her it called it the liquid, molten, golden, white, living light. The instant I said the word light, divine peace and light and energy expanded and enfolded my entire mind, body, and soul. And all I could do was drop my head on the table and cry, and it went on for many seconds. And then when it was over, I wiped my eyes off, and I looked up at Rosalind, and she was wide-eyed, looking down at me and hadn't moved at all, and her face is all wet on both sides of her cheeks, all the way down. And I said, did you feel that? And she says, uh-huh. And Noah did too, her unborn baby boy in her stomach. Later, I had I found a passage in these books that I study from St. Germain. I said, this is exactly what happened to us. But I'm going to read the, and then later I couldn't find it. 
because uh, I have too many pictures. This is about a year and a half or two years later or something like that. And I say this to her. I'm asking her to send it back to me. I said, hi, Rosalind. Do you remember that picture of a page of information I texted to you a long while back describing what happened to me, you and Noah, when the infinite power of divine peace blasted through all three of us the last time I got a massage from you? I mean, I don't know how more specific you can get than that, right? Yes. Yeah, that's good. I've somehow lost it in my phone. and I'm hoping you can send it to me again. Please let me know, blah, blah, blah. Hope you're doing well, my eternal friend in the light. And then before she could say anything, I found it and sent it to her. And she puts a little heart emoji by the picture. And then sends two more messages. The first one says, I love this. And then a heart emoji. The next one says, and it's so relevant for me now. Then I write back and say, me too. It's a deep comfort knowing we are watched over. And in the end, everything and everyone will be raised into that state of perfect peace we each had blast through us three years ago. That moment we experienced is seared into my consciousness forever now. I'm pretty sure it did that to you too. God bless you and your family, Rosalind. And she puts a heart emoji by that and then comes back and says, God bless to you and your family as well, Tony. I'm grateful to know you. Little prayer hands and heart emoji. And, uh, so that's, she's not uh, saying, hey, you're crazy. You need to, don't ever call me again, you know, or whatever. She's acknowledging that that happened to us. It was real. It was very real. It was very real. Not just me. It's happening to people around me. And so these things have happened after I started studying these books. And uh, the books at the beginning, it says, if you, if you, practice these principles, these books will prove themselves to you. And they have. So after, after decades of seeking, I don't seek anymore. I have my, my answers and I study them now and daily, uh, do that daily, bringing, calling in the light. The more I do that, the more, and I meditate regularly. I can feel the energy flowing through me, tingling and gently waving through me as it, as it passes one end to the other, starting at the head and all, always going through me. And it's helped me heal uh, to the point where, you know, I can walk nine holes of golf and hit a driver 270 yards. So that's five years after a car wreck that I shouldn't be standing, you know. <laughs> that's great. Just to wrap up, do you have any last thoughts to share with everybody? What, what one thing can we get from all of this? In the light, we are all one. What we do to one, we do to everyone. And when we do so, we do so most assuredly and most especially to our own selves. So go be loved. That's the only answer. Well said. Thank you very much, Tony Woody. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for asking me to, to do this with you. Appreciate it. Thank you again for listening and just a gentle reminder about donating to the show at roundtripdeath.com. Until then, Merry Christmas, and I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. <laughs>